From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, August 13th. I'm Marco Werman. Egypt's new president shakes up the military, and the military leadership in Yemen gets a reshuffle, too. It's a balancing act. The president is essentially attempting to erode the ground out from under the feet of these two generals while not having the entire Yemeni military come crashing down around his ears. Plus, Saudi women and the right to work. We have many girls graduate with law degrees, and yet they're not recognized as lawyers, so they can't open their own law firms. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. A bold move by Egypt's new president, Mohamed Morsi, took the country by surprise yesterday when he forced Egypt's top military leaders into retirement. Today, Morsi called on his country to rally behind him. People gathered in Cairo's Tahrir Square to show their support for Morsi's move against Field Marshal Hussein Tantawi. Magdi Abdelhadi is an Arab affairs analyst. He joins us from London. Magdi, what is the likely motivation behind Morsi's decision? It's huge. This was bound to happen sooner or later, that he somehow gets rid of the holdovers from the Mubarak era within the military. And these were the most prominent figures uh, to be gotten rid of. Uh, so that in itself is is hardly surprising. What is surprising is the speed with which this has happened and took everybody by surprise. And the reason for that is that Morsi apparently saw uh, an opportune uh, moment following the killing of 16 Egyptian border guards on the border with Israel by Islamist militants. And that was clearly the army's fault. I mean, they had warnings from Israel that something like this was going to happen, and they did very little. And that, of course, made the armies look really, or the army leaders at least, look really bad in the eyes of the public. And he thought, well, that is probably the moment to act. So before getting rid of the of Tantawi and the chief of staff, a few days earlier, he managed to get rid of the chief of intelligence. And that has taken everybody by surprise. Nobody really thought that Mosi had it in him to act so swiftly and decisively. So, Magdi, weigh the balance of power for us right now in Egypt. How much power does Morsi really have and how much power does the army still have? Well, the, the relationship between the two institutions are still largely undefined because there's no constitution in Egypt that is currently being drawn, and it's a contested process. The constituent assembly may might actually be dissolved, and they have to start all over again. So, at present, on paper at least, Morsi seems to have absolute powers. Hmm. Uh, however, you have to remember that what he did—he didn't dissolve the military council that ran Egypt since the overthrow of Mubarak. He just got rid of a a few of them and recycled the others. So the people who are 
replaced uh, Tantawi and the others are coming from the same institution. They're just a younger generation. You have also to remember that Tantawi and, 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 uh, and the others have well beyond their retirement age, and Tantawi is reputed to be really seriously ill. So I think it was long overdue that those people should uh, take a rest. And I think that has gone down extremely well with the wider public in Egypt. Now, the other news today, Magdi, is that Egypt's public prosecutor has ordered that the owner of Al-Farayan TV channel and the chief editor of Al-Dustur newspaper be tried at the Cairo Criminal Court. What's that all about and what are the charges? Well, that has worried everybody, of course, because even many people who, who dislike these extremely tabloidy, controversial media outlets, the quite often broadcast stuff that by Western standard could be considered incitement or or even libelous. But the problem with Egyptian law, of course, that instead of the Egyptian, shall we say, the Egyptian establishment frame of mind is more authoritarian and would uh, take to the sledgehammer rather than put them in trial, fine them for whatever offence they've committed, the knee-jerk reaction is to close them down. And that has, has angered many pro-democracy people and many liberal people in Egypt. But once again, you see, the new rules of the game in Egypt have not been laid down yet. So much of what is happening now is part of the Mubarak era legislation being used. And people are very unhappy about this because there should be a new beginning. And everybody, of course, is worried that, that given that Mursi has enormous powers now, there is tangible fear that the Muslim Brotherhood could show their very undemocratic tendencies. Arab affairs analyst Magdi Abdul Hadi speaking with us from London. Thank you, Magdi. You're most welcome. Yemen's new president has begun to take charge of his nation's military. Last Monday, President Abed Rabo Mansur Hadi announced a restructuring of the Yemeni army. Princeton scholar Gregory Johnson follows Yemen closely. Gregory, much of Yemen's army was loyal to the former president and dictator Ali Abdullah Saleh. How should we be interpreting this reorganization? Is it a big deal in your opinion? Yeah, it's absolutely a big deal. I mean, basically what we have in Yemen is that President Hadi is attempting to stop what's been for the past 30 years under President Saleh, really a runaway truck. So what he's trying to do is stop this runaway truck and get it moved back in the other direction. Because in Yemen, we have a situation in the military where soldiers are not necessarily loyal to the commander in chief to President Hadi. Rather, they're loyal to their own individual commanders, which in this case means the former president's eldest son, Ahmed Ali Abdullah Saleh, and another general, Ali Musin al-Ahmar. So you have this very tense situation in Yemen where you have these powerful generals who are opposed to each other, and the president is essentially attempting to erode the ground out from under the feet of these two generals while not having the entire Yemeni military come crashing down around his ears. Right. So the runaway truck in Yemen is the military. And adding to that metaphor is uh, this. An anonymous Yemeni official said today that the commander of the Republican Guard there is preparing a military coup. Is that a surprise? This is something that's been rumored about for quite some time. You're going to hear rumors. And it's also important to note that President Hadi has now been in office almost six months. And just as important as the things that he has done, he's had this restructuring of the military that continues to be in development. He's created a new force that he's called the Presidential Protection Force, which I'm a bit concerned about. But he also has failed to nominate a vice president in Yemen. And so if 
something were to happen to President Hattie, if there was a coup, if there was something, um, no one knows what would come next. And why was this presidential protection force such a concern in your view? For myself, one of the things that was quite disturbing about President Saleh's rule is that he did exactly this sort of thing. So in 1980, two years after he came to power, he created the Central Security Forces, basically as an anti-coup protection agency. What the United States and what the international community felt they were getting in President Hattie is someone completely different from Saleh. And so for the new president to essentially take a page out of President Saleh's playbook and create his own force that's just loyal to him is, I think, a very worrying development for people like myself. Overall, uh, Gregory Johnson, are you encouraged by the first six months of President Hattie? Yeah, President Hattie has done, I think, a much better job than many people, including myself, felt he was capable of. And I think the reason that President Hattie has been able to do this is that he's gotten very strong support from the United States and from the international community in particular. Unfortunately, because of how the transition came about in Yemen, none of the challenges that 2011 and all the popular protests brought to the forefront, none of those were really dealt with. So you didn't get rid of President Saleh's relatives within the military. You didn't figure out how to handle this other general, Ali Musin al-Ahmar. And all these individuals are still in the capital. They still hold their positions, which is why President Hadi has to be so careful in the moves that he makes and essentially make them in an incremental fashion, hoping that he can sort of tip the balance of power his way toward the central government before the generals react. So it's a very delicate situation and one I think a lot of countries are watching with, with a great deal of concern. Gregory Johnson writes the blog Wak al and is the author of the forthcoming book The Last Refuge, Yemen, Al-Qaeda, and America's War in Arabia. Gregory, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Mummies are generally associated with ancient Egypt, but 2,000 years before the Egyptians, a South American culture was already mummifying its dead. That's the Chinchoro people. They lived on the coast of the Atacama Desert in modern-day Peru and Chile. Archaeologists have long wondered what spurred these hunter-gatherers to start preserving their dead. A new study points to a changing climate. The world's Ritu Chatterjee has the story. The oldest Chinchoro mummies date back about 7,000 years, and they show a surprising level of sophistication. Chilean anthropologist Bernardo Ariaza says the early Chinchoro people followed an elaborate process to mummify the dead. They remove the organs, they clean the cavities, then they start to pack it, with, particularly with a lot of clay, whitish clay. They closed the bodies, sewed the skin back, and painted the bodies black from head to toe. They placed wigs on the heads and they left the eyes and mouths open. Unlike other societies that preserved their dead, Ariaza says the Chinchoro didn't mummify only their elite. Everybody was being mummified, uh, older people, younger people, even fetus and newborns. But why did the simple society of hunter-gatherers and fishermen engage in this time-consuming, sophisticated practice? There have been many theories, but none of them have explained why the practice began when it did. Ariaza and his colleagues suspected there might have been a change in the environment at that time. So for the new study, they looked at clues to the region's ancient climate, collected by other scientists. 
They found that a couple of centuries before the Chinchoro started mummifying their dead, the climate became less harsh in the region. That meant more fresh water and food for the people. Ecologist Pablo Marquette of Chile's Catholic University says that the result was a growing population of people. A higher population density of living people means that you will have more dead people too. In any other place, having more dead people might not mean much, but not so in the Atacama Desert, one of the driest places on the planet. Once you die, you naturally mummify because it's very dry. Uh, Corpses do not decompose, so you stick around. What's more, the Chinchoro didn't bury their dead very deep, and the bodies could have been easily exposed by the wind. So what Marquette and his colleagues propose is that the Chinchoro lived in a landscape littered with naturally preserved dead bodies. Dead people became a very significant part of the, of the physical landscape of the living and also of the psychological landscape of the living people. So imagine the Chinchoro seeing their dead ancestors and their deceased loved ones on a daily basis. Of course, it's impossible to know what the Chinchoro believed, but Marquette and his colleagues suspect they began to regard the dead as another dimension of the living. And that's what led them to put so much care into preparing and decorating their dead and preserving them as mummies. Christina Warner is an anthropologist at the University of Zurich. She finds that part of the new theory plausible. But what she finds more convincing and exciting is the link to the change in the climate. Traditionally, we think of only agricultural societies as being societies that develop uh, complex burial and mortuary practices. But I think that the real secret is not really agriculture. It's really just having a stable food base. And bolstering that argument is what happened when the climate changed again. About 4,000 years ago, the climate became drier and food more scarce. And it's around that time the Chinchoro stopped mummifying their dead. For The World, I'm Ritu Chatterjee. The new study appears in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. We've got a link to it and photos of some of those elaborate Chinchoro mummies at theworld.org. Still ahead, it looks like the butler did do it. An upcoming trial in the Vatican will fill in the details. That's on PRI Public Radio International. At PRI's The World, there's more than one side to a story. You can add your voice to the news conversation online. Find PRI The World on Facebook, on Twitter, and at theworld.org. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We now know, of course, whom Mitt Romney has picked as his running mate, Paul Ryan. The Wisconsin representative has been getting sized up, and so far most of the talk has focused on his budget plans. That makes sense. That is his area of expertise. But how does Ryan weigh in on foreign policy matters? The World's Jason Margolis joins me in the studio. Jason, you've been looking into this. What do we know about Paul Ryan's foreign policy positions? And maybe you can start us off here with a basic issue, defense spending. Right. Well, there's not a great deal of information about how he weighs in on foreign policy, but defense spending, that is a logical place to start because he's a numbers guy. So let's hear what he said last year in Washington at the Alexander Hamilton Society. Our fiscal policy is on a collision course with our foreign policy. If we fail to put our budget on a sustainable path, then we are choosing decline as a world power. So if you look at his budget, he pretty much 
cuts most types of spending. But defense spending does increase significantly under his plan. What's Paul Ryan's position on the war in Afghanistan right now? Well, if you look at his website, he has uh, his positions listed on Iraq and Afghanistan and Israel. And he criticizes President Obama for withdrawing troops uh, this fall. He says uh, we need to stay the course. We risk um, putting all of our hard-fought gains at risk. And uh, he goes after President Obama, but he doesn't really offer a prescription for what he would do differently. He just kind of pokes down at President Obama's plan. Do you get the sense that Ryan would actually urge Romney to uh, push back 2014 as as the year for U.S. troops to begin pulling out of Afghanistan? It's very hard to know. You you don't get much of a sense. And, and we just don't know that much about Paul Ryan and his foreign policy platform. But m- maybe that was deliberate. A lot of people are speculating that Mitt Romney chose this guy because they want to make the economy the only issue for this campaign. And historically, Every president in recent memory has chosen a vice presidential candidate to bolster their foreign policy credentials. Paul Ryan is not that guy. Now, speaking of economics, uh, here's a big one for Paul Ryan. The push and pull kind of economic tension with China. What's he going to do about China? Well, he has some tough talk for China. He he says uh, liberalizing China is in the interest of the world. In his speech last year in Washington, he did take a dig at China. Let's take a listen. Take a moment and imagine a world led by China or by Russia. Choosing decline would have consequences that I think too many Americans are, would not be comfortable with. I think it's very interesting the term choosing decline. He says throughout his speech that America must lead, and that leadership comes from a strong military. And when you look at his budget, he says that these things that are driving the debt, which are weakening the United States, the things driving the debt are Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. He doesn't include defense as one of the drivers of our debt, even though defense spending is about 20% of our budget. It's over half of discretionary spending. So it tells you a lot about his philosophies and how he feels about the military and how it fits into foreign policy. The world's Jason Margolis. Thanks very much for coming in. You're welcome. You can find more of our coverage of the 2012 U.S. elections at theworld.org. Now, you no doubt heard about those powerful earthquakes in Iran over the weekend. Well, Iran has raised the death toll from Saturday's earthquakes to more than 300 people. Thousands more were injured when the twin quakes hit villages in Iran's northwest. The government there said yesterday it's moving from search and rescue to relief efforts. But some say the government's not doing enough. Mansour Farhang is a former Iranian diplomat. He's a professor of political science at Bennington College. He says he's concerned that Iran has refused offers of outside help. Shortly after the news of the quake reached international media, Mr. Puya Hajian, director of Iran's Red Crescent, announced that the country does not need international assistance. In my view, this decision must have been made at the very top of Iran's political hierarchy. And the purpose was and is to claim that in spite of severe economic sanctions against the country, Iran remains self-sufficient to deal with the emergency situation. In other words, some decision was made to politicize this tragedy. And yet the head of the emergency office at the interior ministry, Mr. Hassan Ghadami, he expressed concerns that the victims basic needs such as food, shelter, and medicine 
are not being met adequately. And today, as you mentioned, members of parliament and a number of Iranian newspapers have been complaining about the reluctance or inability of government agencies to reach the victims. And tell us who exactly has offered to help at this point. Four neighboring countries, Turkey, Pakistan, Russia, and United Arab Emirates have announced their readiness to send help. But Iran is yet to welcome their offer. Yesterday, Germany, Singapore, UNICEF, Doctors Without Borders offered help, and there was no response from the Iranian government. You're you're a former Iranian ambassador to the UN. I mean, given the economic pressures in Iran under sanctions right now, it just seems bizarre that they wouldn't accept the assistance. I mean, you, you say this is a political posture. What is the political posture that they're trying to communicate right now? The political posture that they have a constituency inside the country, as well as perhaps some supporters beyond the border on the popular level, but however limited it might be, that they want to show pride. They want to show strength. This is really an absurd way of trying to say that the sanctions have not affected Iranian situation. But in this particular case, the victims are suffering and there is no question that the people under these circumstances would welcome assistance regardless of where it comes from. Now, in 2003, I think uh, many of our listeners will remember uh, the earthquake that hit the uh, Iranian city of Bam, leaving more than 25,000 people dead. What was Iran's position then uh, with regards to foreign aid? Iran immediately welcomed international assistance and many international organizations, non-governmental as well as many governments across the world, sent assistance to Iran in 2003. And the most interesting one was that following the earthquake in Bam, the Bush administration issued a general license to enable relief organizations to provide services in Iran because at that time some people thought that providing services to Iran might contradict regulations of sanctions. But the White House issued an order in order to eliminate that possibility. And relief efforts at the time, they were very helpful in the immediate sense. But so far, I would say the Obama administration is very likely to do the same, that is to say, to be open to the kind of request that President Bush made in 2003. But that request is yet to come. Mansur Farhang, a professor of political science at Bennington College in Vermont. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Coming up, Saudi Arabia considers building women-only industrial centers. That way, women can go to work without encountering men on the job. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. There's a new twist on The Butler Did It. It involves the Vatican's investigation into alleged theft of personal letters and documents belonging to the Pope. A Vatican judge today ordered two men to stand trial in the affair. One is Pope Benedict's butler. The other is a computer expert who works in a Vatican office. John Allen reports for the National Catholic Reporter. John, who are these men and what are they accused of doing exactly? 
Well, the principal figure in the story is uh, Paolo Gabriele, who is a 53-year-old Italian layman uh, who uh, for several years has served uh, as the Pope's major domo or butler, that is a servant and official in his household. The other uh, figure in the story is another Italian layman by the name of Claudio Sharpelletti, who worked in the Secretariat of State, which is the central administrative bureaucracy in the Vatican. And in essence, Gabrielli is accused of uh, stealing documents from the papal household and passing them to an Italian journalist who published them in a sensational book earlier this year entitled The Secret Letters of Benedict XVI. Sharpaletti is accused of helping uh, Gabrielli uh, with the transmission of these documents, uh, in particular of having in his desk uh, an envelope with Gabrielli's name on it that contained uh, some of these secret documents. Is there anything scandalous in, in these documents? Well, some of them are, are almost sort of comically silly. I mean, for example, an anonymous memo written in German about an alleged plot to kill the Pope that was supposedly hatched by an Italian cardinal during a business dinner in Beijing. I, I don't think too many people take that one all that seriously. On the other hand, some of these documents are very serious. Uh, they they pertain to, in particular, Vatican finances, including charges of alleged secret accounts, alleged corruption and cronyism in the operation of the Vatican city-state, and so on. So you sort of have to sort through them uh, one by one, uh, but at least some of these documents have hit the Vatican fairly hard. And according to the prosecution, what was Gabrielli's motive? The excerpts from the interrogation released uh, in Rome this morning suggest that Gabrielli was acting out of concern for what he saw uh, as uh, instances of corruption and wrongdoing in the church and and felt that uh, exposing them to the light of day would sort of be a shock to the system that might promote reform. You know, John, this scandal has already embarrassed the Vatican and exposed alleged corruption at the highest levels. Aren't those accusations of corruption and, you know, unknown power struggles at the Vatican going to surface at a high profile public trial? And what pressure on uh, Pope Benedict at that point? Yeah, I, I think in terms of exposing corruption and internal power struggles, I mean, the, the damage is already done in the sense that the, the documents, the hundreds of documents uh, that were passed to this Italian journalist uh, have already been published in, in, in his book, and many of them are now available in several languages on the Internet. It, it is, of course, possible that if this trial unfolds, defense attorneys could attempt to bring other people into the story, but that does not appear to be their strategy. So far, Gabrielli's attorneys have said that Gabrielli acted on his own, and it seems that they want to make this trial about uh, his love for the Pope and, and his motives here, however misguided, being to to try to help the church. And, and, it, and if that's the case, it's possible that the trial itself w- will not be exceptionally damaging for the Vatican. I suppose the damage is simply that it keeps the the Vatican leak story alive for months to come. John, is there one piece of evidence or any part of the story that's really intrigued you? You know, ultimately, the $64,000 question here uh, remains, did Gabrielli act alone? Uh, it is an article of faith uh, among many uh, Italian Vatican commentators that there have to be uh, figures higher up the food chain at some level who were involved here. Uh, and so if you're looking for the most juicy bit of intrigue uh, and the most most potentially uh, explosive revelations to come out of the trial, I suppose it would be Are there higher-ups who at some level were sort of prompting Gabrielli forward, and will we learn their identities? That is the, the other shoe waiting to drop.
John Allen with the National Catholic Reporter. Thanks so much for the update. Glad to help, Marco. This year, a record number of people have risked their lives on the open seas to seek asylum in Australia. About 100 people have drowned in the process. Many are fleeing violence in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. They pay smugglers to get them into the country illegally. And Australia has been struggling to find a way to deter them. Michael Ree reports from Brisbane. A small group of men wearing T-shirts and flip-flops is gathered behind a chain-link fence. This is a detention facility for asylum seekers. On the other side is about 100 protesters. Abdul Ghaznawi is among the protesters. He gently waves to one of the men inside the fence. The boys, he's sitting on their lock. He's put his head down with people from here saying hi to him, and now he's not feeling well. Now he's, that's very clear, not just him, all of them on there. Ghaznawi has a pretty good idea of what the men inside this facility are going through. He's a refugee himself from Afghanistan. He decided to leave in 2001 after his father and brother were killed. Ghaznawi paid a smuggler about 4,000 U.S. dollars to ferry him by land and sea through Iran, Malaysia, and Indonesia all the way to Australia. But when he got here, the Australian government detained him for nearly three years. We are completely hopeless. There is no hope, no choice, no way. Ghaznawi was held on the remote island of Nauru, nearly 2,000 miles from Australian shores. Nauru has become notorious in Australia, so much so that in late 2007, the newly elected Prime Minister Kevin Rudd decommissioned the detention facility. The move was meant as a step back from the more aggressive policies of the previous government. But something unexpected happened since the government closed Nauru. The number of boats shot up. Just this week came word that Indonesia arrested another 150 Afghan and Pakistanis planning to make the journey to Australia. This country isn't a major global destination for asylum seekers, but many who do try to make their way here by boat have died in transit, more than 600 since 2009. Currently, Australia is holding nearly 5,000 asylum seekers in detention centers around the country. These include children who are waiting to hear if they'll be granted refugee status. How to deal with asylum seekers is a divisive issue here. There have been ongoing arguments between both um, major political parties about whether the domestic policies within Australia have a function to pull or attract boat arrivals. That's Peter Billings. He's an expert on refugee law at the University of Queensland. Billings says there is no clear evidence that detention centers help to reduce the number of boat arrivals to Australia. But the government appears to think so. An expert panel set up by current Prime Minister Julia Gillard has recommended reopening Nauru and another facility like it in Papua New Guinea. It's also recommending Australia boost the number of refugees it takes in each year from about 13,000 to 20,000. The Prime Minister today signaled that she'll endorse the plan. Billings says the discussion here about asylum has evolved. I think we've moved away from it just being a fear about being flooded by a relatively small number of boats to what I think now is a humanitarian issue. I think now it's about loss of life at sea. Australia also is trying some alternatives to detention. Claire, who doesn't want to give her last name, has been hosting a refugee from Iraq for the past month and a half. This is part of a new homestay program designed to keep asylum seekers out of detention. Claire says it's the right thing to do. 
we're reasonably well off here in Australia. You know, we live in a democracy. We've got lots of protections and rights. And the people who come here, asylum seekers, don't have any of that. You know, they fear for their safety. One of the biggest hurdles for a new resident is the language, of course. Claire says that her Iraqi housemate is making some progress. And he, he says sort of g'day mate and sort of gets into the Australian way. But it's a big job, it's a big task, learning the language. So I guess we did a lot of charades, or we still do. <laughs> but this is a relatively small program, and it hasn't made much of a dent in Australia's overall detention population. A new facility, in fact, just opened up in Western Australia last month that was built to house 600 asylum seekers, it's already near capacity. The Prime Minister says she hopes Parliament will pass new legislation on asylum seekers by the end of this week. For The World, I'm Michael Ree in Brisbane. If they stay in Australia, it'll be tough for those asylum seekers to find a job. Getting a job in Saudi Arabia is also challenging, especially for women. Many Saudi women want to work, but there are strict limits on what they can do and where they can do it. They can't mingle with men. But now the kingdom has a plan to expand job opportunities for women. It's proposing a women-only zone in one of its new industrial cities near Hafuf. Iman Nafjan is a Saudi women's rights activist and blogger in Riyadh. Iman says the plan may offer women more jobs, but only certain kinds. Nothing has been really clarified, but what they say is that it'll be in pharmaceuticals and food processing and things like that. But the most important thing that is being repeated over and over again, that these are jobs that are agreeable to a woman's nature. What does that mean? It means that it does not go against her femininity. It's very hard to understand what it means. Um, I, it's a very... It sounds like it's confusing you. Yeah, it's archaic. I think it means that there's not going to be any manual labor. But how can you go into manufacturing without manual labor? And it's, it is confusing. And of course, this is the first city that's being built right now. And, and the plan is to build several across the kingdom. The issue has been on the table for over a decade. The ultra conservatives have been repeatedly asking for it, demanding it, actually, that a completely gender segregated work area be provided for women. You know, if conservatives have been pushing for this plan, it doesn't sound like the, the end goal is to have integration of the sexes. It sounds like th this would be the goal to keep them segregated. Absolutely. Yes. That's the whole point. And that's why that half of the workforce will be men only comes very later <laughs> whenever the city is, is talked about. Nobody ever says that because the goal is to appease the ultra conservatives. Would Saudi women be able to start their own businesses or is part of the, the idea of this is that they have to work for other companies? No, Saudi women do start their own businesses. But the thing is that if you want to start a business, your gender decides what kind of business you can start. You can't, for example, be a construction project manager in Saudi Arabia. That's impossible as a woman, uh, an engineer. We have uh, many girls graduate with law degrees. And yet from the Ministry of Justice, they're not recognized as lawyers, so they can't open their own law firms. They have to become assistants in male law firms. So they can open their own businesses, but as long as it's something like a spa, things that are feminine, dress design and things like that. You right. Know? So how have Saudi women generally reacted to this plan? Um, because it's so far in the future. I mean, they've just started building it and things being built in Saudi Arabia take 
up to 10 years, there hasn't been much of a reaction. Um, I think um, something uh, that has really caused an uproar in Saudi society is the fact that women are being allowed to work openly in the malls. That that has really caused um, a lot of reactions, both for and against. And and working in the malls, that's kind of retail work, shop, women, yeah, that kind exactly. of thing. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of people who are completely against it. There have been envoys of ultra-conservative sheikhs going to the Ministry of Labor the last couple of weeks, 50 at a time, to express their opposition to women working in the malls. Uh, women working in the malls have been harassed by people telling them that they shouldn't. Clear something up for me. Are, are there many Saudi women who would just prefer the status quo with uh, all the sexual segregation? Saudi society is conservative, but at the same time, the practicalities of life have forced a lot of women to rethink the way that they live. And I think that a lot of women want to go out into the workforce. And nothing shows that as much as the number of women who have gone into retail as soon as it opened its doors, Mm. despite all the backlash that they knew that they were getting. I mean, it sounds as if these uh, little openings for employment for women at malls, at supermarkets, uh, would ultimately do more for their independence than this city that seems to be causing a lot of confusion. Who would actually? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Iman Nafjan, a Saudi women's rights activist, speaking with us from Riyadh. Thank you so much. Thank you. Check out Iman Nafjan's blog for more thoughts on women's issues in Saudi Arabia. We've got a link at theworld.org. Okay, so London has passed the Olympic torch on to Rio de Janeiro. The Brazilian city hosts the next Summer Games in 2016. But for our GeoQuiz today, let's linger for just one more moment in London and on one of the athletes who thrilled us on the track. Farah won the gold for Britain in the 5,000 and 10,000 meter races, but he's not British born. Farah is from Somalia, and his family lives in, well, that's a question for you, where? His home village is a long way from the pageantry of last night's closing ceremony. Can you name the semi-autonomous region of Somalia that borders Ethiopia and the Gulf of Aden? The answer's coming up in just a minute. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Coming up, Ethiopian grooves from Boston. But first, we're wrapping up our Olympic coverage now and answering our geo-quiz. One of the lasting images from London was the joy on the face of runner Mo Farah as he won gold in the 5 and 10,000 meter track events. Farah represented Britain, but he was born in Somalia, and his family watched his races back in Somaliland. The answer to our geo-quiz. It's a pretty remote area. Just ask the Guardian's Africa correspondent David Smith, who traveled there to meet Mo's family. That's right. I think of all the family members and supporters around the world of Olympic athletes. You'd be hard pushed to find anyone as as remotely located as uh, the Farah family in um, Somaliland. 
you know, it, it took me a day to get there just from Mogadishu in Somalia with several stops on the plane and, and then a three hour journey to the capital. And then there was literally driving through African savannah with, with no roads at all. Very luckily, we had a local person who knew where Mo Farah's brother lived. Otherwise, I'd still be there now searching for him. This is an area with camels and goats and uh, very old-fashioned methods of farming with wooden plows and, and so on. And eventually, um, there in, in the middle of this very African setting was uh, a man wearing a Team Great Britain jacket. <laughs> and uh, this was Faisal Tara, the eldest brother of Mo, who's 37 years old and a, a full-time farmer. And so, David, uh, between all these cows and goats, were, were you and Faisal able to find a television and watch Mo Farah's amazing Olympic run? I'm afraid not. You know, he, he lives without any electricity. He has access to water from a sort of borehole. But, you know, every time he wants to charge his uh, cell phone, he has to walk six kilometers to the nearest village that has electricity. And mm. that is also where he watched both Mo Farah's big races, you know, the... Uh, 10,000 meters final and the, the 5,000 meters final. He, Mo Farah's mother was there too, apparently, and a crowd. And you know, Faisal Farah said that you know, he exploded like a bomb when his brother won the first race and, and, and ran around shouting and celebrating and, and giving lots of gifts to, uh, to local people. How did the rest of the village celebrate? The whole of um, not only Somaliland, which is a northern region that has declared independence and where the Farah family are originally from. Not, not only they were celebrating, but in fact, you know, the whole of Somalia. And I was previously in Mogadishu and, you know, clearly one of the world's most violent and chaotic cities. But even there, you know, a surprising number of people had satellite television. And even though it was during Ramadan and a two-hour time difference meant the races were very late, there was a lot of enthusiasm and, uh, you know, a huge... Uh, reaction among the, the Somali diaspora, uh, people living around the world too. So, And everyone I spoke to said, look, we don't really mind that he runs under the, the British flag. You know, he is ultimately Somali and there's a lot of symbolism. There's, he represents a lot of hope for, for the whole nation. Would his victories at the Olympics have some tangible benefit for his village in Somaliland? I was told yes. You know, when Mo does go back, and apparently he did last year, there was a hero's welcome and, and people were on the streets. And, you know, he's done a lot of work there visiting orphanages and, and refugee camps and set up a charitable foundation. So, hmm. you know, I think his success means very directly that you know, he put something back into uh, Somaliland. And then, of course, there's also the unquantifiable boost of, of what it does for morale and, you know, as a, a symbolic thing for the nation. Right, and uh, with hope, his victories will inspire lots of kids there, like that one in the airport waiting room <laughs> shouting in back of you. The Guardian's David Smith in Nairobi. You do have to catch a flight, so we need to let you go. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. All the best. And now a quick medal ceremony for the winners of our GeoQuiz texting game. Jonah in Oakland, Stacy in Chicago, and DJ Nash in Baltimore all came up with Somaliland. We don't keep track of the medal count, and it doesn't much matter who finishes first or last. Anyone can compete. All you need to do is text GEOQUIZ, one word, to 69866. Now, cross the border from Somaliland to Ethiopia and don't stop till you get to Boston. (music) 
music from Debo Band to conclude today's program. You may remember our story about the band from last year. They're based in Boston, but they're all about Addis Ababa. starting point for this 11-piece ensemble is Ethiopia's homegrown jazz scene from several decades back. Co-founders Danny McConnon and Eric Greer told us last year that if Ethio jazz from the last century was where they started, it was almost inevitable that the sound would get bent into the current century. We're playing music in a style from the 70s that had very large horn sections and strings. We play music that's so heavily influenced by the 1970s, but I think the fact that we chose to work with new young torchbearers of the music um, who are bringing this sort of traditional vibrancy of of Addis Ababa, it's it's a slightly different direction than I think kind of the roots of the band would have maybe laid out for us. The torchbearers Danny McConnon is talking about are Debo Band's collaborators. Last year it was Ethiopian dancers and musicians from the group Fendika, Before that, Debo Band surrounded themselves with players from the worlds of klezmer and funk. Take, for example, the track And Lay. Debo Band seems to generate more excitement from one show to the next. This year they've been packing houses from New York to Austin. That's also led to heavy expectations surrounding Debo Band's first full-length CD. But they deliver. We'll close with one more track from it. This is the tune Asha Gedawo. And as you groove to it, remember you can catch their performance at Bonnaroo earlier this year and listen to last year's interview with the band. They're both at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues, the Carnegie Corporation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, 
by the Annenberg Foundation, the Freeman Foundation, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International.